Let's get rolling. I want to pick up where we left off on. If you remember, we have been talking about this new man series, understanding who that is. That is so crucial. Is that if you are born again, and the key word is if, because we have in our culture today, and we will talk about this here soon, but in our culture today, they assume that if you were born in America, you must be a Christian. Or if you believe that God exists, then you are born again. That is not the same thing. If you go to church, then you're, you're, you're going to heaven. If you were baptized, then you're going to heaven. All of this different stuff that is man-made doctrine that has nothing to do with what the Bible says. Because those things are not true. Jesus was very explicit when he said, you must be born again. He didn't say, you must believe that I am and do all of these different things. There is very simple. It is all hinged on belief. What's another word for belief? It is faith. Put your faith in him. For by grace we have been saved. This is Ephesians 2. By grace we have been saved through faith, through belief in him. That is the mechanism. Faith is simply the mechanism we use to get to him. James 2 tells us that you believe that there is a God, well, that's great, but so do the demons, and they tremble. Belief that God exists is different than belief in God, putting your faith in Him. Once that happens, you are now what the Bible calls a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You've gone through this metamorphosis. That's the Greek word that is used there. And so when that takes place, you are no longer that old man, but you are that new man, which is where this series has been based out of. We're on our 31st week of this, okay? I, uh, I never planned them this long. They always seem to just kind of grow as we get into it. And so because of that, you are now as right with God as you are ever going to be. You cannot become more right, and the good news is you cannot become less right. We are now justified. We are, we're bought, we're paid for with the price because we have decided to follow Jesus, to quote the song. And so in that, we are now new. Thus, we go through a sanctification process, which is where our flesh, our outside person, the old man, the one that will go away, this, this, this fleshly body, um, still has to be put asunder. It has to be dealt with. Jesus said we got to crucify the flesh. We have to renew our mind. Why? Because those things were not redeemed. Our spirit was. And so, as we get through that, we start to realize there are a couple of different things that goes on. One, that we are bought, we are paid for, we are made new. And then we can get into the other thing, because now once we've done that, guess what? The second you give your life to Christ, congratulations, you are now in the ministry. And with that comes a responsibility. Did you know that the statistics are that um, 5% of born-again believers have ever, in their lifetime, led another person to Christ? 5%. Are those good statistics? No. You know why most haven't? Because we've adopted the philosophy that, and it, and it goes simply like this, that preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That's not how they did it in Acts. Did Paul just show up in the synagogues when he traveled around and just sit there and be a good Christian and not say anything? No. It talks about how he argued with them for three Sabbaths. He went in there and basically said, hey, you idiots, the Messiah's come. Come on, wake up. No, he wouldn't argue. But we've adopted that philosophy. Well, I just let my light shine. That's good. You should do that. Absolutely. But if you never tell somebody why you have a light and what that light source is, then it does us no good. Because are there good moral people in this world by the world's standards? Yes, there is. Yes, there absolutely is. So that doesn't mean anything. One of the things I've talked to, uh, especially... Um, dealing with teenagers and things like that through the years with parents is like please do not mistake morality for spirituality just because your child is well behaved does not mean that they are right with god 
And oftentimes, because they're well-behaved, we take it for granted. We just assume somehow, through osmosis, they will pick up on our faith. And we shouldn't do that. So with this new man, we began to look at who the enemy was, what he did, how he acts, what he looks like, what his name is. We went through that very thoroughly. And then a few weeks ago, we started to look at how he works, because we have to get that. And the number one way in which he works in today's, well, any time for that matter, is through people. God works through people, the enemy works through people. Now, he works through his, what, would be, what Jesus called his children, told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, as just like God does. But how he does that and what he does, and that's what we began to look at. And if you remember last week, we started to pull up some names and some big names, guys like Andy Stanley, very popular pastor. Now, I did this week, Michael Brown, if you know who he is, he was part of the Brownsville Revival, he's a very well-respected theologian, did an interview with Andy, and Andy did explain himself, um, and I, I wouldn't quite throw Andy under the bus just yet. Um, it's teetering on a few things, or questionable, but his approach is a little different, so, um, you know, hopefully there's hope, and he can start to see some of the light and stuff, but, but the bottom line is, is that the enemy gets in there and works through people to bring division, to bring confusion, and to lead us astray. Right? Remember what John 10 says? For the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to have life. So you've got an antithesis. You've got the thief and you've got Jesus. One brings life, one takes life away. But that thief is not the devil. It is the workers of the devil. The Pharisees is who he's talking about. The false teachers. So how does he do this? Well, we got into this last week in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, has God indeed said? That right there is the key to everything. Did God really say? That's the problem. And the problem we have in our culture in America is we don't know what God actually said. We know what someone may have told us about what God maybe said one time, but we don't know what he said because we don't know our word. And you can see that trickling through culture today. Why do you have atheists today that are using the Bible against us? Because they know it better than we do. A lot of times. Why is the homosexual movement so desperate to get the Bible to confirm their lifestyle? Why? What difference does it make? And why are Christians starting to buy into that? been the same for thousands of years. Suddenly, we don't understand because we don't know the Scripture. Has God indeed said, you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you should not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said, you won't die. So now he first questioned what God said. Now he's trying to say, no, that's not right. That's not going to happen. You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like good and you, you'll know good and you'll know evil. What did they know prior to that? Only good. So he's saying you're going to know both. You're going to be just like God. What does Romans 1 tell us? That they worship the creation rather than the creator. We begin to make a God in our image. We mold him into the things that we want. I hear it all the time. When I'm talking to somebody who says they don't believe in God, one of the main questions I ask them, well, describe to me who God is. And the description they give to me is not the God of the Bible, which makes it really good for me, because then I say, hey, congratulations, we're on the same page, because I don't believe in that God either, because he doesn't exist. Where do they get this idea? TV, movies, things they've heard and stuff. We've created a God in our own image. So what happens there? He questions the word, 
Okay? Did God really say that? Then he flat out denies what God said, and he's got her attention. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so she likes what she saw, obviously she liked what she heard, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and we know what the rest of it says. So what happened? She bought into the deception. First he questioned what God had said. Then he told her, like, well, that's what he said. That's not what he meant. You're not going to die. You'll just know good from evil. You'll be like God. Now that sounds pleasant. In other words... He tickled her ears. He, he gave her something that she wanted. He, he gave her the desires of her heart. Because, oh man, this tree, it looks good. Yeah, it looks good. And it's, it's pleasant to the eyes. And if it's going to make me wise, why would I not want to do this? In other words, we're justifying our actions. That's what she's doing here. Okay, so we see this. We see an example of this again in Matthew chapter 4. We read all these last week. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we know who we're dealing with. That's the same as in Genesis 3, the serpent. When he had fasted 40 days and nights, afterwards he was hungry. Then the tempter came to him. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered, he being Jesus, it is written, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he brings Scripture back. Now why did he do that? Because he knows what God has said, right? That's the key. Now, verse 5, Then the devil took him up on the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, and you notice he's questioning him, like, prove yourself to me. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands you shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now think about that right there. What did he do? He said, Yeah, this is what God said. Let me explain to you what he meant. He meant that you can jump off of this thing and you'll be just fine. Now, Eve fell for this, right? Yeah, Eve fell for that. Eve, not, not Jesus. Eve fell for that. Yeah, you always like, nah, you're wrong. She's about to leave. No, Eve fell for this. In other words, the questioning of God's word and even using God's word against him, Jesus did not fall for it. Because he says, it is written again, you should not tempt the Lord your God. Now, she fell, and most of us do, is like, hmm, that's a good point. Maybe I should think about that more. Maybe this is really what he meant. Verse 6, and again, the devil took him up an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him you shall only serve. You see, here's the thing. Jesus knew what God had said. And Jesus knew that when something came contrary to that, that it would throw up a red flag, if you will, and he discerned what was happening, and he used Scripture against the misreading of the Scripture. I hope some of you guys went and read those verses that, that the enemy used in context so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. You see, here's the thing. What happens is we quickly fall into something that kind of is already what we believe. We tend to gravitate towards that. Look at it politically. Okay, when you're on the far right, I say far, I just say the right, the Republican side. When you're on the right, you tend towards whatever facts support what you already believe. What do you do on the left? The exact same thing. We don't look for truth, we look for what we want. I'll just keep looking until I find something that tells me what I already believe. Okay, is that the search for truth? Should we be on a search for truth? Absolutely, because Jesus said he is the truth. So if we're not searching for truth, we won't find it. Chuck Missler said it like this, is that the biggest adherence to ever discovering truth is to assume that you've already found it. In other words, once you think you've got it, you stop looking. We should never do that. We should never read through our scriptures assuming we already know what this means. We should be looking and digging and mining every day. 
And so we see this example. What did he do? He got in there and suddenly started twisting the word. Just a little. Little nuances. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says, I charge you. Now, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy was left as a pastor over the church where he was, and Paul is writing to him. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Is that passage true? Absolutely. Was it true when Paul wrote it? Absolutely. Was it true before Paul wrote it? Absolutely. It's been going on since the very beginning. You see, what we do is we gravitate towards people who will already tell us what we believe. And we get caught up in this trap. And thus, if they're wrong, then we struggle with that. We'll read a book by a respected author, somebody that we have great admiration for, and they will have an untruth in there, something that might be their opinion or something like that, and we'll tend to buy into it because we love them, and we can't do that. I mean, I went to Raymond. You guys know how everybody felt about Kenneth Hagin. Now, I got some things that I would disagree with him. Still love the man dearly. But there were some things that I would disagree with. But boy, down there, you didn't, you didn't bring that up because he was looked at as God. Should he have been? Absolutely not. Was he a great man of God? You better believe it. You know, that's the problem we have is what we do is, is we tend, because we have itching ears, we chase after what we want to hear. So what do we do? And this tells us exactly what it is. They'll heap up for themselves teachers. Okay, now remember, he's a pastor. So he tells them you need to convince, rebuke, and exhort. Okay, you need to convince them of the truth. You need to rebuke them when they're wrong. And you need to exhort them, encourage them, lift them up when they're right. But do it with all long-suffering and teaching. In other words, you're always teaching, Timothy. You're always staying with them. You're always giving them the Scriptures. You're always you know, going through this with them with long-suffering, which means that no matter how frustrating it gets, you don't quit. This is what you do, right? We don't see that in the church much today. Most people give up. And then he goes into this other part. Because they have itching ears. They're going to chase after what they want. We see that in churches today. We go to where we feel comfortable. We go to where it excites us. You know, there was, you guys remember the prosperity movement that was so big in the 90s. What happened is that everybody was chasing after those preachers that kept telling them how they're going to be rich, how that God's going to give them cars and airplanes and mansions and all this other stuff. Now, we believe in a, a, a form of the prosperity gospel, but not in the extreme sense like that. But the bottom line is, is, what did they do? They started heaping up for themselves teachers. And who are these teachers being used by? The enemy. So look at this, and let's look at Matthew 16. We're done with the review. I want to show you this today, and then I'm going to give you some examples of how this is being used in our world today, because this, is what I, this does us no good if we can't practically apply it to our lives. Discernment is key. You have to learn it. Whenever somebody gives their heart to the Lord and I'm working with them and stuff like that, the number one thing I try to teach them is how to discern a falsehood. And the reason we can discern that is because we should know the word so well. Just like banks, they don't teach people how to recognize um, counterfeit currency by showing them a bunch of counterfeit currency. They've become so well adjusted to what a real bill feels like that the second they feel something that is not right, it, it just throws up red flags. We need to be like that spiritually. And sadly today, we are not. And this is sad. 
Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 5. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now I want to stop there. Now let's think about what leaven is. Leaven is almost exclusively used as a bad thing. What does leaven do? It's yeast, it's put into bread, and it puffs up. Every sin can be rooted back into pride when you chase it all the way down. And so you have the leaven of two specific groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the religious and political leaders of the day. The Pharisees were in charge of the Sanhedrin during the time of Christ. The Sadducees will take power later on with the time of the apostles. The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in any of that kind of stuff. All right, and, and it tells us that in the book of Acts. The Pharisees were more of the literalist, but the legalist. So they believed the word and they believed whatever it said, but they take it to such an extreme. You see examples of where they're calling this, uh, the apostles sinners because they didn't wash their hands. There was nothing in the Torah that told them that they had to do that. This is one of those fence laws where it was a man-made doctrine to keep them further away so they never fall into captivity again because the captivity was judgment of God. So you have the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their sins. Don't fall for this. Beware. Okay? Verse 7, and they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. Typical us, right? Jesus is saying, I mean, it's like, is the bread that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have better than what we would normally get? Like, why would you ever associate those two things together? He's obviously talking about something spiritual, but they're assuming like, ah, we're in trouble because we forgot the bread, right? Anybody ever seen Seinfeld? The marble rye? Nobody? Tough crowd. Okay, verse 8. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? In other words, he's like, hello, guys. We made bread out of nothing. Like, I'm pretty sure we can handle the bread aspect. You shouldn't be worried about that. But what do they do? They turn to natural causes immediately. Verse 11, how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, good, they finally caught on. Good for them. These guys were a little dense, okay? They had to be brought along slowly. Jesus should have wrote in crayon form. It would have helped them out. But here it is, he's, being, he's warning them, guys, don't fall for that. Now, we've seen, because we've read it last week, right? We're in John chapter 8, John chapter 9, John chapter 10, dealing with the Pharisees specifically, telling them, hey, you, I'm not of this world. You are. You're, you're going to die in your sin. You're keeping all of the law and all these other things. But guess what? Your heart's not with me. You are going to die in your sins. This is something that they could not compute. It did not make sense to them. And so he's saying, don't fall for this doctrine, this leaven, this sinful desire. They were being used by the enemy because they were of their father, the devil. You see, what's happened is through the years is that the enemy will use people and often religious leaders. And I say religious, I don't just mean Christian. Religious leaders who will lead people astray. Okay? Think about cults. Right? We have what we call Christian cults and Mormonism and, and, and Jehovah's Witnesses. They're only called Christians because they at least look at the Bible once in a while, even though it's a mistranslation of it. But we've got these cults all over. Do you guys remember, uh, what was the one who drank the Kool-Aid? Jim Jones? Is that Jim Jones? Yeah. How could you fall for that? 
They did. Why? Because they believed what he said was true. He was a prophet of God. What about the one that just happened down the road back in the 80s, down in Rulo? I had a friend of mine that grew up right next to that when that whole thing was going on. Luckily, he stayed away. Well, he didn't exactly stay away. They were two miles down the road, and they used to go over there because he had all sorts of cool guns, and they let him shoot them. So, yeah. I was like, did they ever feel like they were trying to recruit you? He said, at the time, no, but looking back, I can kind of see it. So, here's this guy, and people were following him as a prophet of God, and this is how it worked. You would come to him and ask him a question. He would seek the Lord. And here's how he'd get his answer. If he put his arm out, and this might be backwards. But if his arm went up, the answer was yes. If his arm went down, the answer was no. <laughs> Nobody could mess with that system, right? It, it Maybe. Yeah, there you go. I mean, they, but people fell for that. People were killed over that. It was a horrible thing. The guy's named Michael Ryan. He just died in prison over in Tecumseh uh, last year, I think, or maybe the year before. I can't remember. It wasn't that long ago. But yeah. So why do people fall for that? Because they're seeking for something, and they found this truth that they already somewhat held, and it confirmed in their mind. Do you know why Mormons believe what they believe? That the the scriptures that they have are accurate, the teachings of the Mormon church are truth, and that the three books, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, and their version of the King James Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Do you know how they uh, come to that conclusion? The Holy Spirit reveals it to them. They'll get a feeling. That's what they say. You ask them why they believe that that's true, and they say the Holy Spirit has confirmed it to us. Okay? Now, let me ask you. How many times have you made that same exact statement? Holy Spirit confirmed it to me. So can that be manipulated? Of course it can. It does all the time. We see people giving prophecies for money, um, you know, doing all that sort of stuff. Why? They're using religious leaders. The enemy is using religious leaders to lead people astray. And we've been warned. There are so many verses in the New Testament about that. Let me read you one. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That means it's all of it. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Okay, so this is, he's talking to the elders. This is Paul talking to the elders and all the flock, which would be the church, the believers, all of the people that you're over, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, it could be used for pastors and made you pastors over to shepherd the church. What does it mean to shepherd? You lead them, Right? shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood so who does it belong to Jesus but you're an overseer of it so he's saying you watch it for I know this that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every night and day with tears. So what did he just tell them? You need to watch your flocks because there are going to be wolves that are going to come in among you. They're going to get in and they are not going to spare the flock. They're going to steal the sheep. They're going to do whatever they can. And guess what? From among yourselves, overseers, among yourselves will rise up those who will speak perverse things. And why? To draw disciples to themselves does that happen today yes it does let me show you some examples okay because the reason i'm showing you this is we need to be i i know this is a lot of information a lot of times guys and this is different than i normally do but i want to show you how these things happen they start so innocently it starts with an idea do you know that ideas have consequences when you make a truth claim about the word of god then it should be confirmed through the word of god and not through your opinion of it right so let's look at a couple of people. The first guy here I want to show you his name is Carlton Pearson. 
Now, how many of you guys have heard of Carlton Pearson? You guys know who he was? Yep. He was a prominent pastor down in Tulsa. He was down there when I was down there. Had a large church, five to 6,000 people. Um, very well known. In fact, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, he was one of them that they brought in to pray. He was a powerful man of God. He went to ORU, uh, student of Oral Roberts, loved him, grew up in the church. Good man of God. In fact, he was, I believe at one point, was on the board at Raymond where I went to school. I think he was. I can't remember exactly. I know he certainly had spoke there a few times because he was just right up the road. Very large church, five to 6,000 people. I mean, that's a good-sized church. Now, by some of the megachurch standards of today, that's a little bit smaller, but this is back before the idea of the multi-site campuses where you're one church, but you have 15 different campuses all over the place. And so he um, went on a transformation while I was down there. This happened. That he began to question the idea of whether hell existed. In other words, is there a judgment coming from God? Now, we just read something a little bit ago that talked about he's going to, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead, right? He began to question this idea. And in that questioning, he began to um, relook at what he believed and started to question what Scripture said about those types of subjects. And it led him on, on a journey, I guess, if you will. That's usually the words that they use. Um, because of this, because he left what we call orthodoxy and went into more kind of heterodoxy and started to eisegete, which means he started to come up with these ideas and then trying to find scriptures to support it. He started going down this journey, uh, started affirming homosexuals, that it was okay, that God made you this way and you're, you're perfectly okay that way. And thus, he ended up losing his church. His elders began to leave him. The church folded. I mean, five or 6,000 people now all of a sudden Going else places. The last time I was down there, when I drove by the, the old church, it was a preschool. Now, not exactly what God had in mind, but that's what it is. He is pastoring again. He, I think he hooked up with the Episcopalians um, down there and started pastoring at those church. And he is starting to make a name for himself again. But I want to read you an, an article here. I think I've got the, the thing. Nobody goes to hell, minister labeled a heretic. This is from 2007. Now, remember, this happened in, I think it happened in 2002, 2003 when this started to really come out. But let me read you this. Virtually every religion throughout human history has some notion of a horrible life after death. And though the threat of fire and brimstone is not preached as fervently in this age of reason. Now, this is not a Christian source. I just, I'll, you notice how he says it, the age of reason. In other words, we understand now. One man in Tulsa knows just how hard it is for the modern believers and their religious institutions to let go of the medieval version of hell. So you guys see what he's doing here. He is undermining this. If I say everybody's going to heaven, then I can't raise money from you to get me to keep, keep people out of hell, Carlton Pearson said with a wry smile. That concern anybody else? Has that ever happened? Absolutely. People have used that for years to get money out of people. He knows firsthand that when it comes to filling pews, hell sells. And when he stopped believing in it, he lost an evangelical empire built over a lifetime. Carlton Pearson was born to work a pulpit. My dad was a preacher. His dad was a preacher, he said. Tongue talk and pew jumping, holiness, hellfire, and brimstone. You know what that means, guys? He came from the same camp that we do, right? I'll go on. Pearson began casting demons out of people at age 16. He couldn't wait to go to ORU. Once there, his love for, of the scriptures and his stage presence was so obvious, the renowned televangelist took him under his wing and took him on the road as one of the world action singers. The man was very charismatic. I mean, he was a good speaker. Oh, man, that was heaven on earth for me. 
Pearson said, in our opinion, Oral Roberts was the third cousin to the Holy Ghost. There were a lot of people that felt that way. Oral Roberts was a good man. After years of preaching to crowded arenas and television audience, he built the Higher Dimensions Church in Tulsa and soon became an evangelical megastar with a mega congregation. Up to 6,000 people would attend his services each week, and he was in high demand in the Christian world, sharing pulpits with Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. After the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, he was called to lead the grieving in prayer, and he counseled both President Bush and President Clinton on faith-based initiatives. Throughout his rise, Pearson preached the fundamentals, everyone is born a sinner. Everyone is going to hell unless they accept Jesus as Lord. One sermon from the late 90s displayed his passion. Thank God I don't have to go to hell, even though I deserve hell, he shouted. But Jesus vicariously substituted for me, took on death, hell, and the grave, and I have the victory today. That's a quote from an old sermon. Through the years, as Pearson studied the ancient Greek and Hebrew scripture, he developed a crisis of faith. Now let me just throw this in here. When you have to succumb to a language that we don't speak and understand to explain the simplicity of the gospel and the word, we're starting to trend in dangerous territory. If I hand somebody the Bible and I say, read John 3, and you tell me how we get born again, it's pretty obvious, right? We, we can understand. Any, a, a kindergartner who could read could understand that concept. But if I have to go in there and start, well, let me explain this to you because you don't speak Greek. So let me break this down for you. That's not a place that we want to go. There's beauty in the languages, and there are nuances to it. But the simplicity of it, we should be able to hand anybody a Bible, and they understand it. Through the years, Pearson studied ancient Greek and Hebrew scriptures. He developed a crisis of faith. I couldn't reconcile a God whose mercy endures forever and this torture chamber that's customized for unbelievers, Pearson said. Now question, is that true? What does Matthew tell us? Hell was created for the devil and his angels, right? Does God send anybody to hell? No, he does not. We choose it. And he often agonized over the fate of his non-Christian family members. According to his faith, they were doomed to hell. So because of that, he didn't like it. How can you really love a God who's torturing your grandmother? And that's what I went through for years. The more he studied, the more Pearson saw the Bible, not as the literal word of God, but a book by men about God, primitive men prone to mistranslation, political agendas, and human emotions. And one night, as he watched Peter Jennings' report on the parade of suffering in Rwanda, he had a revelation. Now, think about this. Go back to what he said. How can you love, really love a God who's torturing your grandmother? And then he began. So what was the idea that he got? This loving God would surely never judge a person. That's the deeply held belief. So he's starting to question, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. You guys see how this is working? You guys follow me? Because it's the same thing we saw in Scripture. That's why I'm pointing this out now. You need to watch this thing trans transform. I remember thinking that these were probably Muslims because God wouldn't let that happen to Christians, the thing in Rwanda. He said, unbelieving Muslims, little starving babies, and that they were going to die and go to hell. And that's when I said, God, how could you? How could you call yourself a loving God and a living God and just let them suffer like that than to suck them into hell, he continued. And that's when I thought I'd heard an inner voice, when I thought I'd heard an inner voice say, okay, now what is the inner voice? We'll call it the Holy Spirit, right? That still small voice is how Ezekiel describes it. We hear this, so it's something confirming him, right? Confirming what he's already accepted as truth. Remember what the Mormons say, I have a confirmation from the Holy Spirit, okay? Is that what you think we're doing? 
I said, that's what I've been taught. You're sucking them into hell. And that voice said, can't you see they're already there? That's hell. You created that. Okay? Now, as you'll see as we get further along into this series, is how the number one way that the enemy speaks to us or works in us to attack us is through our mind. And you'll see that because that is in the Greek and it's very clear. So just understand it. Pearson believed that God was telling him hell is the creation of man on earth. The bitter torment of the idea of an angry, visceral, distant, stoic, harsh, unrelenting, unforgiving, intolerant God is hell. It's pagan. It's superstition. And if you trace its history, it goes way back to where men feared the gods because something happened in life that caused frustration that they couldn't explain. Is the description he gave the description of the God of the Bible? No, it's not. It is contrary to that. Pearson began sharing this message, and it wasn't long before Christian magazines demonized him. The denomination that made him a bishop officially labeled him a heretic, and his assistant pastors quit, and his congregation dropped from 6,000 to fewer than 300. When people leave by the thousand, it's like pulling clumps of your hair out at one time. It was hell. Now, that's hell. The people who created hell for me are people who used to love me and will call themselves followers of Christ. It wasn't some secular, atheist, God-hating infidel that denounced me, my own brethren with whom I sat and ate, whose babies I dedicated. What's he doing? He's, woe is me. They're attacking me. They're coming after me, right? What does Matthew 18 tell us? We confront, then we bring two, then we bring the elders, and at the last resort... We cast them aside. Now, when it's the pastor, it's a little different scenario on how you handle that, which means typically you have to leave. As his life came apart, he agonized over his new belief. If you think, I haven't sat and asked God, am I crazy? I see you bigger and better, but am I? Am I going to lead people to hell? Kill me, God. It seemed like that prayer might be answered when his doctors found cancer. Pearson stuck with this new message, even though losing his church altogether. He now rents space from the Episcopalians across town, and this has changed since then. This is 07. And his congregation is growing. Slowly, people uh, from all faiths are adding to the few who never left, despite being labeled heretic themselves. You notice how it's all faiths, right? All roads lead to God. I think hell is a state of mind, said Teresa Reed, a music teacher stuck with Pearson throughout the turmoil. And if my family heard me say this, which they probably will, there will be fasting prayer and sackcloth and ashes for my damned soul. After the avalanche of hate mail and all the rejection, Pearson says people are slowly warming to his idea. His cancer is in remission and he doesn't regret his difficult path. Religion won't let you love yourself. Religion is the accuser of the brethren. That's what the devil is. So he just called the devil religion. It's legal system, religious dogmas that say you're not good enough, you're not God enough. People who believe in hell created for themselves and others, people who believe in devils and demons become that in consciousness and they act it out. Pearson said he firmly believes, as he told his congregation one recent Sunday, we may go through hell, but nobody goes to hell. But his current message is not focused on hell, even the hell that humans sometimes create here on earth. My hope is that, that people will learn to love themselves, accept themselves, and celebrate themselves. That's pretty dramatic, but I think it'll save the planet. Question, is our attempts to save the planet all for naught, considering that they are going to be destroyed and God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. Yes, it is. So what did we see here? He'd already accepted some ideas as true and desperately needed to find scripture to back it up. And as he began to do this, 
taking Scripture out of context, he hears a voice, what he believed was from the Holy Spirit, confirming that to him, and it led him on this path. Did God say? No, he didn't. Do you see how this happens? So this is that 2002, 2003 range. I don't remember exactly when it happened. Well, let me introduce you to another guy. This guy's a little bit more recent. This guy's name is Rob Bell. Rob Bell um, pastored a church up in Michigan. Started it in 2007, 8, something like that. I don't remember. Um, again, a phenom, a very charismatic man. There's always a, 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 a commonality there is that they're good, eloquent speakers, right? Because they're persuasive. I mean, you don't send people, if you've got a sales company, you don't send people who can't talk to somebody to go sell your product. You ain't going to be selling a lot of product. And so Rob Bell is, uh, has come out as what we call a universalist. So let me read you this here recently. Bell and his wife moved from California to Grand Rapids to be close to family on an invitation to study under Pastor Ed Dobson. Uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. So you know. He handled many of the preaching duties of Saturday night service at Calvary Church. Bell announced that he would be branching out on his own to start a new kind of community, and he would call it Mars Hill after the Greek site where the Apostle Paul told a group, for as I walked around, looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now that you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. In February 99, Bell founded Mars Hill Bible Church with a church originally meeting in a school gym in Wyoming, Michigan. Within a year, the church was given a shopping mall in Granville, Michigan, and purchased the surrounding land. In July 2000, the 3,500 gray chair facility opens its door. As of 2005, an estimated 11,000 people attended the two gatherings on Sunday at 9 and 11. As of March 2011, Sunday attendance numbered between 8 and 10,000. His teaching at Mars Hills inspired the popular Love Wins bumper sticker. Maybe you saw some of those. Think about when they uh, legalize gay marriage. Love Wins. And the congregation freely distributed these stickers after service. In fact, he wrote a book called Love Wins. I think we got that up there. A book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Go ahead and leave that up there for a minute. In order to maintain balance in his life, Bell maintained his Fridays as a personal Sabbath where he did not allow contact by electronic means and had all pastoral duties transferred to other Mars Hill pastors. In January 07, issue of the magazine TheChurchReport.com, Bell was named number 10 in its list of the 50 most influential Christians in America as chosen by the readers and online visitors. In June of 2011, Bell was named by Time Magazine as one of the 2011 Time 1. 100, the magazine's annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. I'm telling you, making Time Magazine's list usually is not a good sign for you. Um, just ask Hitler. Okay. In June 2011, oh, I said that. Bell stepped down from the church he found in September 22, 2011 in order to pursue the other areas to reach a broader audience. He later said that his book, Love Wins, had led to a fallout with the congregation and forced him on a search for a more forgiving faith. Okay. So in other words, what's he seeking? What he already desires, what he believes. In his writing, Bell says, I affirm the truth anywhere in any religious system, in any worldview. If it's true, it belongs to God. Okay, now quick question. Who determines what's true? God. Okay? Bell says that this is not just the same old message with a new method. We're rediscovering Christianity as an Eastern religion, as a way of life. 
Legal metaphors for faith don't deliver a way of life. We grew up in churches where people knew the nine verses why we don't, why we don't speak in tongues, but had never experienced the overwhelming presence of God. Bell's book, Love Wins, caused major controversy with the evangelical community. The controversy was subject of a Time Magazine cover story and featured an article in the New York Times. In the book, Bell states that it's clearly been communicated to many that this belief in hell as eternal conscious torment is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. In this book, Bell outlines a number of views of hell, including universal reconciliation. Though he does not choose any one view as his own, he states whatever objections a person may have of the universalist view, and there are many, one has to admit that it is fitting, proper, and Christian to long for it. Now, let's pause there. What is a universalist view? It is where it doesn't matter where you believe, what faith or lack thereof you have, Christ paid for you, paid for everybody, you're getting in. It doesn't matter what you believe. If you believe that Jesus was real, not real, doesn't matter, you're getting in. That is the universalist belief. But you notice it always hinges around love, right? Love is the key. You see, the term love has changed in the last 15, 20 years. Because to love somebody means to accept them the way they are. Is that love? Well, let me ask you this. If you've ever had a child, child, a toddler, okay, and one of the fun things for a toddler is to help their mom cook, and when they're helping their mom cook, what do they tend to do? They tend to reach up and touch the stove. Now, if you love them, you would let them do that because it's fun for them, right? Because it, it brings them happiness to reach up there, they, and if you love them, you'd let them do that. Of course not. Love tells them the truth that what they're doing is misguided and will cause harm, Right? If we had the cure for cancer, is it loving to tell somebody about it or not tell somebody about it? To tell somebody about it. If we were in a burning building and there was one exit, is it loving or unloving to tell them that there is only one way out? All the other ways that you're looking for is not going to get you out of the building a lot. But this one way will. Is that loving or unloving? That is loving. Loving tells the truth. Loving calls sin, sin. That's the misnomer. The book was criticized by numerous conservative evangelical figures, in particular some Reformed church leaders, Albert Moeller, John Piper, David Platt, with Moeller saying that the book was theologically disastrous for not rejecting universalism. Now, here's some names you might recognize. Other evangelicals such as Brian McLaren, Greg Boyd, and Eugene Peterson, and we'll come back to Eugene here in a minute, defended Bell's views. Bell denies that he is a universalist and says that he does not embrace any particular view but argues that Christians should leave room for uncertainty on the matter. Sure, where the Bible is gray, we're gray, right? It's not gray when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say, hey, I'm a way, I'm a truth, and I am a life. Do whatever you want, you're all getting in. That's not what he said. As John Meacham stated, love wins represents, uh, presents case for living with mystery rather than demanding certitude. Now, some of you guys may have seen these things being thrown around. Like uh, They'll say that, I don't have all the answers, and I'm okay with that. I just love Jesus, and I'm going to be like him. Some evangelicals argued that this uncertainty is incompatible with Scripture. I would, argue, I would agree with that. While others say that the book is simply promoting overdue conversation about some traditional interpretations of Scripture. In the book, Bell All Questions Evacuation Theology, which has Christians focus on getting to heaven instead of focusing on God's renewal and transformation of this world. Yeah, it's going to be renewed like it's going away and he's starting over. 
Bell argues that Jesus and the wider Jewish tradition of which he was a part focused on God's ongoing restoration of this world, not getting individuals to heaven. That is not correct. At his Viper Room appearance in July 2012, Bell took a question from an audience member concerned about the church's acceptance of gay members. Said Bell, some people are gay, and you're our brothers, and you're our sisters, and we love you. We love you. Gay people are passionate disciples of Jesus, just like I'm trying to be. So let's all get together and try to do something that, about the, the truly big problems in our world. In other words, we just overlook sin. Okay? Now, if a man was having a, uh, an affair on his wife, would we ever just say, well, he's just an adulterer, but we just love him the way that he is. It's okay. God made you this way. Nope. Would the wife accept that? <laughs> no. No, no, no. Not a chance, right? How come you can be born gay, which is a sexual sin, but you can't be born adulterous? I don't know. Let's go on. On March 17, 2013, an interview uh, at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, Bell said, I am for marriage, I am for, for fidelity, I am for love, whether it's a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man, and I think the ship has sailed. This is the world we are living in, and we need to affirm people wherever they are. In other words, we need to accept them the, the way that we need to encourage their lifestyle, right? Again, well, let's go back. Would you ever say, it's okay, just touch that hot stove, because I love you. Of course not. Bell has expressed frustration with the current state of conservative evangelicalism, calling it a very narrow, politically intertwined, culturally ghettoized evangelical subculture. He says that evangelicals have turned away from lots of people, have turned away lots of people from the church by talking about God in ways that don't actually shape people into more loving, compassionate people. Adding that evangelicals have supported policies and ways of viewing the world that are actually destructive, and we've done it in the name of God, and we need to repent. No, what is destructive is saying it's okay, God made you this way, but God loves you and you're going to get in regardless of whether you believe in Him or not. So, I could go on. I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit because I got all sorts of stuff about Rob Bell, but I do want to say this. So, Rob Bell came out. He was the first one who was an uproar. This is a book that was written by a guy that I graduated from Raymond. It's called What the Hell? How Did We Get It So Wrong? Eternity, Grace, and the Message of Love. He wrote this book in approximately 2010, I think. Shortly after Rob Bell had come out with his, he began becoming a disciple of Rob Bell. This is the same guy that I graduated from Ramah with, was in the same programs that I was in, so we had the same background and all of that, but began to start questioning Scripture. And they don't believe in eternal judgment, eternal hell, anything like that, that it's more of a state of mind, and that while there might be a form of punishment in the afterlife, it is not this eternal conscious one, and therefore eventually we all get in. This sounds a little bit like purgatory, doesn't it? Find purgatory in your Bible. You won't find it. And so he wrote this book, and now he is a completely different guy. I mean, on, on social media, I hardly recognize him. Um, I try to have communication with him when he wrote the book. I read it. I bought it from him. I wanted to support the guy. I cared about him. I read through it. I tried to have communication with him about it. That really didn't ever, you know, happen. Um, but I tried. And he's not alone. He ended up losing his job because he came out and believing all of this stuff. The church in which he was did the right thing by removing him immediately. He was hurt by that, couldn't believe it. He promised not to teach it. And it's like, can you honestly exegete Scripture for your flock with that kind of background that goes against Scripture? No, you can't. They did the right thing. But he was spurned by the church. And so because of that, he now has a following with thousands of people who have been hurt by a church in some capacity. And he's just one more added to the list. Okay, so this happened. So what happened? Well, we already had this idea. We can't, we can't con 
convince ourselves like you got this hateful vengeful God in the Old Testament you got Jesus who comes in he's so passive and loving and all of that was Jesus passive and loving he wasn't passive he was very loving and by loving them he told them they're all sinners you are of your father the devil that's pretty judgmental right don't cast your pearls before swine he's calling them swine pretty judgmental like he's getting after it he flips over tables and chases the money changers out with a whip we've not done that yet Right? I mean, this is pretty harsh. He was not some flower child walking around saying, peace and mercy to you. He's like, hey, your day's coming. He told the Pharisees they're going to hell. Right? You're going to die in your sin. You're going to go to hell. Pretty judgmental. Now, you notice that Eugene Peterson's name came up. Okay? Eugene Peterson is a name that you should be familiar with because he wrote the Message Bible. Okay? Now, most of us in here have it or read it or something like that. It is not a translation. It is a paraphrase. In other words, what he's done is he's taken the Bible and he's kind of put it in everyday words that we can kind of understand. And it's not bad. I'm not telling you not to read that, but I want you to understand. We have to understand the worldview in which these people come from. So, I want to show you this. Go to the next slide. Eugene Peterson defends Rob Bell and endorses his book. And I just told you what that book said. The guy who wrote the Message Bible, who, which is loved and adored by many. And this guy is, is a, he's a, what do you call him? He's very artistic. He's kind of like a poet of sort. He's got lots of Christian writings out there that have been loved and adored for years. Okay? First, let me be clear. I'm not interested in discussing this myself. I agree with Peterson's assessment and comments. This is the, the author here. If others wish to engage what Peterson is saying, so be it. But for my own sanity, I will not be commenting. I simply found what Peterson said. I had to say, as wise, Christ-like advice for all of us as we consider the way in which we dialogue, it always helps someone much smarter than you make your point for you. The whole argument be found here. Okay, question to Peterson. What are your thoughts regarding Rob Bell's book and the controversy it ignited? What inspired you to endorse the book? Rob Bell and anyone else who is baptized is my brother or my sister. We have different ways of looking at things, but we're all part of the kingdom of God, and I don't think that brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God should fight. I think that's bad family manners. Now, question, is the statement he made correct? If anybody who is baptized, they are my brother. Is that correct? No, it is not. Dunking somebody in water does not make them right with God. It's important, but it's a heart issue. Okay? He says, we're all part of the kingdom of God. They're all my brothers and sisters. That's not correct. Let's go to the next one here. There you go. The agonizing ordeal of Eugene Peterson. You might be next. Let me read this to you. It's another article. Was he against it before he was for it? Is he really against it now? The ordeal experienced last week by popular author Eugene Peterson was agonizing to deserve, largely self-inflicted, and virtually inevitable. You should pay close attention to it, for you might very well be next. So what's it talking about? Well, it goes on to explain Talking about gay marriage. The ordeal began with Peterson, one of the most influential authors among evangelical pastors, responding to two straightforward questions about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Jonathan Merritt of Religion News Services referenced homosexuality and same-sex marriage and then asked Peterson if his view on the morality of same-sex relationship had changed. Peterson was pastor of Christ Our King Presbyterian Church in Bel Air, Maryland for 29 years before retiring in 91. In his answer, however, Peterson said, I haven't had a lot of experience with it. An earlier congregation where he'd served as associate pastor included several women who were lesbians but didn't make a big deal about it. The congregation he served as pastor was much the same. I don't think we ever really made a big deal of it. They had a gay musician, but nobody made any questions, or made any questions about it, and he was a really good musician. Like, that makes it okay. 
His answer was con convoluted, but he concluded, it's not a right or wrong thing as far as I'm concerned. Peterson asked, then, was then asked, if you were pastoring today and a gay couple in your church who were Christians of good faith asked you to perform their same-sex wedding ceremony, is that something you would do? Peterson sim answered simply, yes. That yes blew up at the evangelical world like a signal fire. The RNS headline on the interview stated that Peterson had changed his mind on the question. A significant number of evangelicals responded with the immediate shock and disappointment at Peterson's answer. The largest Christian bookstore chain that said that it was considering whether to continue selling Peterson's many books, including the message, his best-selling paraphrase of the Bible. But almost as quickly as his yes appeared, it was retracted. The next day, Peterson released a long statement published in, a, in full at the Washington Post. He retracted his yes and said that he would actually not perform a same-sex wedding ceremony. That's not something I would do out of respect for the congregation, the larger church body, and the historic Christian view and the teaching on marriage. That said, I would still uh, love such a couple as their pastor. Now, how would you love them, is the question. He also stated, to clarify, I affirm a biblical view of marriage, one man to one woman. I affirm a biblical view of everything. So is he contradicting himself on what he said previously? Yes, he is. Within 48 hours of the interview, Peterson had issued a statement retracting his yes to same-sex wedding ceremony. He now affirms marriage as one man to one woman. The brush fire then switched directions. Now folks displeased with Peterson's interview were at least partly comforted by his retraction, while those who had been comforted by his yes were hurt and infuriated as a subsequent no. Jonathan Merritt ran a story at RNS within hours of Peterson's retraction, noting that in 2014, Peterson had already told a conference in back and indicated the evolution of LGBTQ issues. And looking back on his tenure patch, he stated, I started to change my mind. He also spoke of talking to parents whose children had come out as gay, saying they finally accepted that this is not a bad thing, that this can be a good thing, this can be a flourishing thing. So, he goes on and on and on, and I'm going to skip ahead here for time's sake. So here we have the writer of the paraphrase. Most, it's popular, guys, and stuff like that. But what's the worldview they're coming from? And he wrote an endorsement for a book that is anti-biblical. Did God really say? These are religious leaders of today going on right now. These guys are still out there speaking, shout, doing their thing, leading people astray. They're savage wolves. They were raised up amongst them going after the flock, drawing disciples to themselves. Let me show you one more, okay? It's an author named Paul Young. He was the writer of The Shack, okay? The Shack was a popular book and an even popular movie. It came out a few years ago, I think two or three years ago, maybe. Something like that. Hugely popular. Um, if a person can go and sit down and enjoy a movie and not get super theological about it, hey, enjoy the movie. Same with the movie. But, again, coming back to everything, the worldview that they have and the lens in which they read Scripture and thus they write from is very important. So, here are some questions that was asked to Paul Young. He also wrote another book. Let me, let me show you that one. Lies We Believe About God. He's come out with that one more recently. Okay? Question was, has the gospel saved everyone? It says, no one reading and embracing lies we believe about God will feel a need to repent of his sin or his sins and trust in Christ for salvation. That is because Young denies that we need to do so. The good news is not that Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation and you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God, the Father, and into his anointing in the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote, and whether you believe it or not won't make it any less or more true. Anticipating the charge of universalism, Young lays his cards on the table. Are you suggesting that everyone is saved, that you believe in universal salvation? 
That is exactly what I'm saying. Later, he equally explicit, every human being you meet is a child of God. Thus, hell isn't a separation from God, but simply the pain of resisting the salvation we have and can't escape. And death doesn't result in final judgment, but simply introduces a restorative process intended to free us to run into the arms of love. You'll see that being used by these guys, that God's judgment is restorative to bring them back to where his love is. So does God have any expectations of it? Uh, let's see. God, the God of lies we believe is fundamental. Uh, excuse me. The God of lies we believe fundamentally defined a kind of love. He likes us, values us, affirms us, invites us into relationships, shows interest in us, and so forth. Many of these assertions can be affirmed, and indeed, love is at the heart of the biblical portrayal of God. But this book gives the impression that God is only ever loving in this way, displeasing over traditional divine attributes and diminishing God's overall transcendence. Young disdains the idea that Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from God's judgment. He never speaks of God's authority, but affirms that God submits to us. He won't even allow that God, that God has expectation of us. For Young, God only grieves for, us, grieves for and with us when we act inside our darkness and lies uh, he is never disappointed in you. God has no expectation from you. God's strength and sovereignty are also imperiled for young. It's a lie that the cross was God's idea. If God originated the cross, then he is a cosmic abuser who is cruel and monstrous. Again, one wishes for engagement with the biblical text apparently at odds with this, uh, for example, Isaiah 53 and Acts 2. If the cross wasn't God's idea, who was it? Young contends that it was only our doing, a manifestation of our blind commitment to darkness to which God submitted. But could God have prevented it? One is uncertain since it is a lie that God is in control. Guys, and I could go on and on, and for the sake of time, I won't. But I want you to know that this stuff has influenced the church today and has taken the, uh, the church by storm. These ideas and concepts have even crept into beliefs that we hold to. And he goes on and on and taking that scripture. We don't take scripture literally. This idea that, that God is love and he affirms us and he loves us. Brian Zahn, pastor in St. Joe, wrote a book, um, uh, sinners in the hand of a loving God is a retribute to the sinners in the hand of an angry God, right? It was a God about judgment and things like that. And in this, he said, we don't have a monster God that, that killed his own son. That's child sacrifice. And Paul Young will use those words later. In fact, he just recently spoke down at his church uh, a couple of months back. But he says that we have a God who lovingly restores us, and so he doesn't believe in what's called the penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, is that the Son came down to take our place as judgment from God, and the wrath of God was poured out on him on our behalf, and then we receive it. He doesn't believe that. He believes that the evil in man did that because they were too tied up in their old ways of thinking. And that the Jesus we see in the New Testament is the idea of who God really is. And that it was just the understanding of who God was in the Old Testament. That's not how God was. That was how they perceived God. It was this old-timey fear of God. Does this sound at all like the God of the Bible? No, it has influenced the church more than you will ever realize. These ideas have crept in time and time again, and they are contrary to Scripture. It's not contrary to my opinion. It's contrary to Scripture, and that's a place you never want to be. You see, we have to be able to discern truth from error. There are truth in all of their statement. Is God love? Yes, but how you define that word matters. There's truth in it, but it all comes back to did God say? It's been the same since the beginning. He used the Pharisees in the New Testament 
He's using the religious leaders of today, and we could get into other religions. And I'm going to show you some different stuff next week. But let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. What's he going to He's going to judge? No. Preach the word. Preach what? He didn't say preach your opinion. He didn't come, say come up with a sermon about your best life now or how you can be an overcomer or how to get the job you always wanted or how to have a happy family or how to just excel in life. But that's what he's teaching today. He told him to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside of fables. Guys, this is happening in our world today. I used to get invited to speak at several conferences, but I took a hard stand on Scripture. And even stuff that isn't like heretical. I mean, just we get into some flaky stuff, and, th- and I just refuse to play the game that I don't get invited much anymore. And I'm okay with that. I got plenty of other stuff to do. It made no difference to me. But the bottom line was, is as soon as I quit toting the company line, because when you preach an exciting message, and you're talking about how you can be an overcomer, and God's here to bless you, and all that stuff, what happens? The offerings get bigger. People think they can buy their miracles. And I refuse to do it. I wouldn't do it. I'm like, I will not. Anytime I was praying for healing, we never took up an offering. Um, I absolutely refused. In fact, I would make them, if they were going to do it, it had to happen before I stepped up on stage because I wouldn't do it afterwards because I didn't want them to think they could get something from God by giving after the fact. Never. Because I'm just like, we are going to be above board in all things, and they didn't like that. Now, these are not bad people, and it wasn't like that was the idea. They just noticed that, hey, when we do this in this certain way, that, you know, the offerings are bigger. These are people that love God, and we're preaching truth. We just disagreed on some semantics. The bottom line is, is that we are living in this world today. Has God said? We believe in healing. Well, God doesn't heal today. If you have enough faith, Oh, you have sin in your life, so God can't heal you, right? We come up with all these excuses, but did God say that believers lay hands on the sick and they recover? Then why are we questioning that? Did Jesus say that, did the Bible say that he'll meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? Then why do we ever doubt that? They say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Why do we doubt that? Oh, we don't. We've got that one down pat. It's every other promise that we question. Has God truly said? That's the question. The enemy's been doing it since Genesis. He's not going to stop until the end. Guys, you have to have discernment. We have to be able to see through this stuff. Don't accept something that looks good. It's pleasing to the eyes and makes promises that it can't keep. Sway you from the truth of the scriptures. We stick with the word.